You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Apostle Paul says this, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. This is the word of God for the people of God today. Would you you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this Christmas season. And thank you for the privilege that we have this morning to gather together, to hear from your word together. God, I pray that you would come and reveal yourself in all of your majesty and all of your supremacy to us. Lord, we know that you are supreme over all things, and I pray, God, that you would lead us to a place where our hearts would find rest and comfort and rebuke even and encouragement through the preaching of your word. Help us to see Jesus as supreme. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, y'all can be seated. Uh, just a quick note, I can hear this in my ears for our, uh, for our awesome sound guy in the back, Mr. Bryce. Everybody take a look at him. He does lots of good work. I, I can hear music in my ears in the speakers, and so I would assume there's still some music playing somewhere in the background, which is fine. It's just not quite our style, right? We can have somebody on an organ Hit the organ. Dun, dun, dun. Stoked to be here with you guys. Stoked to be in uh, this new um, series with y'all. Um, I love the Christmas season. I don't know about you guys. There's something about the Christmas season that is just absolutely beautiful and uh, full of joy. And it's definitely upon us now. We've got snow outside, beautiful snow. I know most of us probably hate the snow in some regards because it brings about the cold. But for me, it just means I don't ride my motorcycle anymore. I drive my four-wheel drive. So I'm cool with that. Um, but the Christmas season does um, bring lots of awesome things for us. you got Christmas lights. Again, the beauty of the snow. Uh, you got times together with uh, family, um, gift-giving. All those things that the Christmas season brings around are definitely full of joy and and beautiful for us. But we know that this year is different, right? This year is definitely different for us. 2020 has been a a rough year, to say it um, um, lightly. It's still been a beautiful year, but the question that I keep asking is like, what is so beautiful about 2020? What's actually beautiful about this very difficult year. It's been a tumultuous year. Um, It's probably the most tumultuous year I can remember. So in my memory, um, I think back to all the different years. You know, I was younger. I remember um, different wars that we got into. And um, 
So I remember some tough years, but I don't remember any year like this year. Um, I don't know about some of you that are older than me. Maybe you saw some tougher years. This year's definitely been tough. It's rocked the world, right? You've got the whole COVID-19 thing, worldwide thing. You've got, we had racial uh, tension and injustice stirring things up um, in, in our country, leaving an ugly mark on, on throughout various states. You've got, you got uh, political upheaval um, that's really divided or, or, or at least uh, revealed a deep division um, throughout our country, I think in a very horrific way even. Um, you think about the emotional and, and the relational and even the financial trauma of this year on, on people's lives. It's been a tough year, and all those things are still unfolding in many ways. It's not like we're on the other side of it looking back a couple of years later. We're all still kind of walking through this together. Now, I personally know um, and have been engaged in marriages that are, that are falling apart right now. Um, that the strain of this year has just revealed the ugliness that was under the surface. And, and so now, because of that strain, things are falling apart. Um, I, I know some whose addiction levels have skyrocketed because of um, the pressures of this year. I know people who are living in um, real deep financial pressure that almost feels beyond bearable for some. So in, in, in the midst of the, the chaos of this year, I still say there's something beautiful that is taking place. But what is that? What is the beautiful thing taking place in the midst of all the, the chaos and, and, and the craziness? Christmas really is about the birth of our Savior, right? That's really what Christmas is about. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, who left His really comfortable, his kind of a, a swanky spot in heaven um, to come here, to come to this sin-soaked, broken earth, to, to live the perfect life for us, the life that we could not live, to do uh, miraculous things that we cannot do, to die on a cross for his sin-filled enemies, right? This is what this is what Jesus came to do. When we say that this season is about the birth of Jesus, this is what we're saying. He came to do these things and then to leave the grave empty three days later to return to heaven, right? Right, right after giving a promise of his return in glory to set everything right and straight in the future. That's the promise that we live with now. It's not, it's not just heaven like we get to escape this crazy place. It's more like it's more like the promise is that sometime in the future, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set everything right. He's going to make it right. It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So we, when we talk about Jesus coming in this time, this is what we're talking about. This is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that Jesus reigns supreme, right? It's that Jesus reigns supreme. That's the center of the message of the gospel. Oftentimes, I think we make ourselves the center of that gospel. But the reality is Jesus is the center of that gospel. That's why this is a beautiful season. That's why I can say that this year, as devastatingly insane and ugly as it's been, that's why I can say this is still a beautiful season. Because at the center of all the hardship and the lost, what we get is we get a picture of Jesus. I say this because God 
God in His sovereign kindness. God did not see fit to give us an easy year, right? Instead, what He gave us is a really tough year. How do you look at really hard things and say, well, it's actually a good thing? How do you look at really ugly things and say, thank you, God, for that suffering, for that hardship? How do you do that? Again, you know, when your marriage falls apart or when your kids rebel or when you lose a loved one, when those things happen, how do you look at those experiences and say, God, thank you for the good gift that you're giving me? And when I say that, I'm able to say that, and I hope that you are too, because of this knowledge that at the end of the day, all of the suffering and all of the difficulty that God allows, or you could say ordains, or if you want to take it a step further, you could even say decrees, and if you want to get into the difference, the nuances of those words, at the end of the day, all the suffering, all the difficulty that God brings in or allows to come into our lives, just like the ugliness of the cross, when you think about that day, all of those things are meant to show us that Jesus actually reigns supreme over everything. And here's the thing, the, 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 the empty tomb is evidence of that, isn't it? I mean, you're sitting there on, 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 on Good Friday, right? It doesn't seem like such a good day. But you're sitting there in the chaos of that and the horror of that day when Jesus is being nailed to a cross. And it's hard to see what's going to happen three days later. The reality is that Christ reigns supreme over all things. And so as you look back over this year, as you begin to engage in this Christmas season, my hope and my prayer um, is that you would remember that Jesus is the Lord of all, or, or he's not the Lord at all. Right? That might just sound like a catchy phrase, and it is catchy, but I came across it in my study this week as I was looking at this text, and I thought, man, that's, that's good. Jesus is either the Lord of all, or he is not the Lord at all. Jesus doesn't cease being supreme in the midst of the difficulty and the suffering. You know, every unanswered question you have, think about that. What, what, un, what unanswered questions do you have when you came in this morning? <laughs> Things that you've been asking deep down inside. Think about every painful experience that you have experienced this year, over the course of your life. Think about all the disappointing things you've faced or wrestled with, or maybe you're wrestling with now. Every shortcoming that you struggle with, every unmet desire that maybe keeps you awake um, all night long, all those things are under the sovereign hand of a very loving and kind King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ who reigns supreme over everything. You think about that term, King of kings, Lord of lords. There's no one higher than him. There's no one more supreme than him. There's no one with more authority than him. That's the Jesus that we're talking about in this Christmas season. There's, there's nothing that gets past him, right? There's nothing that Jesus doesn't already see coming. There's nothing that you um, have experienced that, that, that he doesn't know. And also, in reality, when you think about Jesus, there's nothing that he hasn't experienced as well, 
other than sinning like you and I do. He's experienced the effects of sin. You could even say the temptation of sin. He's definitely experienced the weight of the penalty of sin at cross. The thing that we have in Jesus is we know that he is a good brother. And, but even more than that, he, he's the king of kings. He's experienced all these things. So there's nothing that you and I do experience that he hasn't experienced in terms of pain and hardship. And the other thing is that Jesus is not so far away from us that we can't come to him right now with all of our junk, right? That's something about this season that we um, continue to remember in many of the songs that we've seen. Is that Jesus actually came here so that you and I can come to him and so that we can find all of our hope satisfied in his supreme presence. That's the Jesus we're talking about when we talk about Christmas. And really this is the message of the text in front of us today. I can give you a, a short phrase. Here's the phrase. That despite all of the evil in this world, Jesus reigns supreme. Despite all of the evil in this world, Jesus reigns supreme. I hope that you would hang on to that and see how that fleshes itself out in this text. When you think about the Colossian church that Paul is writing to here in Colossians, the Colossian church was planted years earlier by the Apostle Paul, though he never went there physically. He was in Ephesus planting there for a period of time. And while he was planting the church in Ephesus, people came over from Colossae. And, uh, and, and Paul literally had a hand in planting that church. Now, now Paul's sitting in prison. Go figure, because it seems like Paul spent an awful lot of time in prison. Now Paul is in prison, and in these two dudes, Epaphros and Philemon, um, come to him um, with some of the issues going on in the church. And they're asking Paul, how do we deal with this? Uh, Epaphros and Philemon were among some of the earliest believers in the Colossian church, probably the first believers. And so years later, now they're asking Paul to give them some help. What were they asking Paul for help with, do you think? What was happening in the Colossian church is there were heretics running around like crazy. Commonly known as the uh, Colossian heresy um, is one of the ways that theologians have termed it. The Colossian heresy is the reason that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to him. There were people in the Colossian church that were running loose, um, and, and they were commonly known as Gnostics. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. Gnostics. And what these, these Gnostics, these heretics believed, is they believed that physical matter was evil, and that invisible spiritual stuff was far better. These false teachers, they, they had a very smooth, um, kind of an outer look of a Christian upon them, but their doctrine or their teaching was all jacked up. It was laced like a really bad drug um, with very complex sets of legalism, rules of things you need to do and don't do. That, that was one stream that was laced into their message and their doctrine. The other one was a, was a very secret societal behavior code words and, and all sorts of things like that that made it very attractive because it made you feel like you're part of something really special. 
It was also laced with a firm belief in astrology. So they would look to the stars and they would start with, look at what God created. And then they would move into some really whack stuff that we don't have time to get into today. But that was part of their um, finely laced um, message. Um, and, and really, it was all wrapped up in Christian language at the end of the day. So it seemed good when you first heard it. It seemed good. It would be very attractive. And the way that they acted, the way that they behaved, is that they actually had the insider track on how to be right with God. And what they did in this insider track of how to be right with God was they would actually demote Jesus from the supreme King of Kings and Lord of Lords that he is. They would demote him down into a mere... Um, like figmentation of God, like a representation of God, but not really God because Jesus could never be God if he was in the flesh because all things physical, bad, okay? So ultimately, this is why it was called the Colossian heresy. This is what was taking place um, in the Colossian church. Evil, evil was running rampant throughout the church. The Apostle Paul writes here, in this letter, and I think what he's getting at is that despite any of the evil, despite any of the hardship, despite any of the bad things that you see happening, Christ still reigns supreme. Look back at the text with me at verse 15. The first thing that we notice is that Jesus reigns supreme over eternity. Think about that for a minute. Jesus reigns supreme over eternity. This is why the Apostle Paul says that Christ is the image of the invisible God in verse 15. 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Christ simply reigns supreme over all of eternity, right? He is the king of kings, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God who deserves our honor and our glory forever and ever. Paul said that to Timothy. You think about Moses, if you look into Hebrews 11, and Moses, uh, the author of Hebrews says, Moses looked forward to the supreme reign of Christ from eternity with faith, enduring all the evil of his day. That was what Moses did. <coughs> and he was unable to endure <clears throat> because he kept his eyes locked forward in faith on Jesus who is supreme. Apostle John refers to Jesus as the Word. That the Word was God. That the Word was with God. That's the way John refers to Jesus. What all of these authors throughout the Bible are saying is that Jesus reigns supreme over all of eternity. It's not like he had a starting point. When, when Paul calls Jesus, you look back at verse 15 again, when he calls Jesus the image of the invisible God, what's he saying there? Is Jesus just a mere representation of God? Because if that's all he is, then why would we worship him? Right? You know, you know, you don't worship a picture. Yet, this kind of language that Paul is using does point us in that direction. When he calls Jesus the image of the invisible God, he's saying that Christ is the exact, when you look back to the Greek language, it's not just merely a representation, but it's an exact or perfect imprint or portrait or representation or revelation of God. The kind of Greek language that is used by Paul here leaves nothing to the imagination in terms of the exact perfection of Jesus in this image. 
Jesus is not some uh, second-rate emanation from God, like the Gnostics would say to the Colossians. Um, he, he, he's not some uh, emissary from God or some messenger from God, or he's also not just some step on the ladder. That uh, would be another way that the Gnostics would try to uh, communicate this. That it'd be good to start with Jesus as the lowest run on the ladder, and then from Jesus, move your way up the ladder to perfection in God. That's the message that these Gnostics would be teaching. It's oftentimes it's no different than what we see, I think, uh, in the Christianity that, that we're sold oftentimes to. Think about it this way. Start with Jesus. Start with accepting him into your heart, right? And then from there, build a relationship with God by reading your Bible, going to church, praying, and practicing disciplines. Are those things wrong? Somebody tell me, are those things wrong? No, not at all. In fact, they're very good, and in fact, we should be doing those things. But there is a sense in which even we in the American church have made Jesus the starting point and then try to climb up the ladder with all of our good deeds and our disciplines until we become super spiritual, holier than thou. We got the insider track, and all those dummies outside these walls don't know anything. Follow me? That, that's, that's, a, that's similar, at least. I don't think you'd walk into many churches today, um, Bible-believing churches, preaching, good preaching churches, and find somebody say, Jesus is not God. But think about the ways in which we treat Jesus like he's not supreme, right? So Jesus is not just merely some run on the ladder, okay? Jesus is God in the flesh. His name is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. The reality is that Jesus reigns supreme over eternity. There's nothing that has happened to you or to me, and there's nothing that's going to happen in the future that hasn't passed across Jesus' desk, so to speak. Once again, despite all of the evil in this world, despite all of the hardship in this world, despite all of the heresy in this world, despite all the falsehoods in this world, Jesus reigns supreme. And he reigns supreme, first of all, over all of eternity. Think about the second way that we see Jesus reigning supreme in this text. He reigns supreme over creation. Jesus reigns supreme over all of creation. Look back at the text in verses 15, kind of latter half of verse 15 through 17. Here's what Paul says. He says that it was by Christ, the firstborn of all creation. We're going to come back and deal with that verse here in a minute because it's really important to deal with that, that verse. It was by Christ, the firstborn of all creation, that all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Quick summary of what Paul's saying there. Jesus reigns supreme over all of creation. There's not one aspect of creation that Jesus doesn't reign supreme over. And, and, and when you look at these verses, here's, here's some things you can kind of pull out of it. Uh, when you look at Christ's supremacy in in verses 15 through 17, you'll see four different ways, um, four different ways that, that, that Jesus is supreme over creation. 
Uh, first, if you look at verse 15, you'll see that Christ is the supreme firstborn. I'm going to come back and deal with that word in a minute. I just want you to kind of catch the treetops. First, it's the firstborn. That's one way we see that he's supreme. Secondly, he's the supreme creator. That's the second aspect that we see. Third, Christ is the supreme goal of creation. So, firstborn, creator, goal. And then number four, he's the supreme sustainer of all creation. So, think about those four words. Firstborn, creator, goal, and sustainer. Those are the four ways that when you look at Jesus in this text that you can be assured that Jesus actually does reign supreme. So back to the uh, phrase, the firstborn of all creation. I want you to think about this. When, when Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation, here's what he's not doing necessarily. Okay, Track with me. He's not necessarily referring to Jesus' literal birth, although there's some connection to it. What, what Paul is doing is he's referring to Jesus' rank and honor. It would be like a military term. Um, first among, or first above, in rank and honor. Uh, the phrase firstborn uh, is used all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament in this way, not to necessarily always denote the idea of the first physical born. Although it can be used that way as well. In this context, it makes so much more sense to say, and this doesn't have as much to do with his physical birth as it does with his rank and his honor. Jesus is the firstborn. His rank and honor in eternity is what? The next word was creator. Okay? <clears throat> you cannot be both the creator and the firstborn and then have a starting point. Make sense? It's not like he created himself. That's, just like, that's preposterous. Um, so if that's preposterous, then he's either A, the creator for sure, who then became flesh among us by his own power and purpose, or he did not exist before, and he did have a starting point, such as many heretical sects today. Sects, S-E-C-T-S. Stop it, I saw all your eyes. Saw it right away. <laughs> There's many heretical groups today. Um, one of those being Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Jesus had a starting point when he was born. He, he's, he's no more than uh, an angel um, born um, as flesh. He's not God. He was a God, um, according to that group. There are others that do this as well. And what they do is they'll take this firstborn of all creation and they'll strip it of the actual meaning. Again, points to rank and honor as the creator who then created everything out of nothing, right? This is what God did in the Bible. Spoke and created everything out of absolutely nothing. And then after that, what did he do? Jesus then condescended um, from his high level, that comfy spot in heaven. He didn't need us. Uh, oftentimes I'll hear preachers say, God needs you to do... No, God doesn't need you or I to do absolutely anything. God chose to. 
because God's the only one who actually has true free choice. Not meaning that we can't choose to do some things, but God's not inhibited or prohibited by anyone, whereas you and I, we are. So when you think about the concept of freedom, the only one who has true, real freedom is God himself and then those who are in Christ because as we follow Jesus, he sets us free from those, those things which hold us in bondage and keep us back. So God, in his free ability to do whatever he so chooses and pleases, created everything out of nothing, and then what did he do? Condescended to be born among his creation. That's a crazy concept. You don't have to climb ladders to get to him because he came down the ladder to get to you and I. That's what he did. That's, that's the picture of what, what this season is about. It's about Jesus becoming Emmanuel or God with us in the flesh. You see, everything in all of creation finds its ultimate fulfillment, purpose, goal. Right? Remember, that's the third word I think I used, was that Christ is the goal. He's supreme because everything finds its ultimate purpose or goal in Christ Jesus. Why? Why does everything find its purpose or goal in Christ Jesus? And why is that important? Why is that even significant for us? Well, think about it this way. How often do you and I make ourselves the goal of everything, right? My emotions, my desires, my experiences... Yet really what the gospel teaches us is that Jesus is actually the goal of all things. And he's the purpose or the goal of creation because he is the one who literally holds everything together. It is through him that all things are sustained. By him and for him. So he holds it together for the sake of his own glory. Jesus really is the invisible glue um, that, that, that is holding this world together even as it spins headlong into, into destruction. I think oftentimes we as Americans especially, we, we get this whole utopian feel about our existence here on earth. Like we're going to create a utopia somehow. You know, whether, it's, whether it's America as a nation, like this is going to be the utopian space. Or whether, you know, whether it's our homes or, or, or our crowds or our groups. Um, it's kind of a crazy, wonky um, theological system that we get into where we're like, man, if we could just do things right, everything will be great, and all the world out there that's going to hell in a handbasket will be, like, shielded from that. It's, it's just weird thing. Um, it's this weird thing that really doesn't have any place in biblical theology. I mean, it's really, um, it's really a twisted version of, of what it means to, to be the kingdom of God on earth. The reality of the overarching story of the Bible is, is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You could say slash glorification. I, I use these phrases all the time. When, when you divorce your reading of scripture from those themes, what happens is you get these little weird pockets of the, theological teaching that are like, wait a minute, the, does the Bible teach that? Like, it seems like it does, but it's like, no, wait a minute. If you step back and you look at those grand themes, God created us and everything to be a certain way. What happened next? Fall. Sin, right? It's infected the entire human race and, and, and everything in all of creation, right? What happens next? Redemption. Jesus comes in the flesh. We're talking about that now. 
in the flesh to die on a cross to redeem a people for himself, right? And then what happens from that point forward? Then there's restoration. Well, the picture of Scripture from that point forward is, is a picture of a world that goes to hell in a handbasket, and then at some point, Jesus comes back on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and firebolts come out of his eyes and a tattoo on his leg. That's the part I love the most. Not really. I mean, I love it all, but um, he comes back as a warring king. That's his second advent. We're celebrating the first advent, his first coming, his second coming. When he comes back, his imminent return, when he comes back, what's he going to do? He's going to lay waste to everything that is opposed to him, that is broken, and he's going to restore it. So the restoration that you and I long for doesn't mean we stop fighting for good, doesn't mean we stop standing for truth, but we don't place our hope in building things in this world. What we place our hope in is the truth that Jesus reigns supreme over all things because, because he's first in honor, he is the creator, he is the goal of all things, and he is the sustainer. He will sustain this world until he returns. See, ultimately, Jesus reigns supreme in creation. Why? Because he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He is the one who is going to bring ultimate restoration, reconciliation, like I just spoke about, to this entire world. You look at Romans 11, you look at Revelation 21, that's what you see. This is why I say that Jesus does in fact reign supreme over all of creation. I have to say, it's hard to compete with little cute kids that are running around on the floor. No way you can compete with you, Piper. Look at this kid. You're fine. Don't worry about it. Man, what a sweetie. <laughs> At the end of the day, despite all of the evil and the brokenness in this world, Jesus really does reign supreme. Amen? Hey, by way of conclusion, I want to point your attention to Psalm 89. I'm not going to read through the whole psalm. I just want to make some highlights. It connects to this. When David wrote the words of Psalm 89, <coughs> he was looking forward to the Messiah. He was looking forward to the Christ who would reigns supreme in eternity and in creation. So this is why David cries out in different portions of Psalm 89. He says these things. Listen to this. He says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. He says, with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. He says, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord. He says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are. He says, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise, you still them. He says, God, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. Like it belongs to him because he created it. David is looking forward to Jesus when he says this. The earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it. You have founded them. Again, in short, what David is doing in Psalm 89 is he's looking forward. He's, he's looking forward to the Messiah who's going to reign supreme over all of eternity, over all of creation. Why is David doing that? He's doing that simply because he knows that if the Messiah is not the Lord of all, 
then he's not the Lord at all, right? Like I said earlier. Where is it in your life that you need to be saying, Jesus, I have not made you the Lord of this area? I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what desires. I don't know what painful experiences. I don't know what fears or concerns or doubts it is inside of you where you have not surrendered to him as the supreme Lord of all. But I trust that the Holy Spirit would reveal that to you now and that you might even make a note of that on a piece of paper or in your phone or nudge your friend or your spouse next to you and say, hey, this is the area where I have not surrendered and submitted to Jesus as a supreme Lord of all in my life. Because if he's not the Lord of all, then he's not the Lord at all. That's my prayer for us in this Christmas season. That as we come near to the end of this uh, super tumultuous year, and my prayer is that we would find hope, that we would find healing, that we would find courage, we'd find strength in this truth, that the condescended, uh, crucified, risen and returning Christ would indeed reign supreme over all of eternity and over all of creation in our lives, right? <clears throat> that we remember that despite all of the evil in this world, despite all the things that get right there in front of our faces that take our attention, despite all those things, the news feed, the, the absolute insanity and craziness of the world we're living in, that despite all those things that seek to get our attention, that at the end of the day, Jesus does in fact reign supreme. And where, where do you go? Where do you go to find this? This is where I want to head every time I preach. I always want to leave us in this one place. And there's, there's one place that you can experience and witness the supremacy of Christ. And that place is at the foot of a bloody cross where Jesus hung and died and paid the price for your sin. The doorway of the empty tomb, where he rose supreme, victorious over the grave, looking forward to eternity in our Father's presence. It's not a picture of escape. I mean, the picture of escape is the whole idea of the, um, the pre-tribulation rapture concept that you would actually escape all the tribulations that are coming. Whether that's right or wrong, I would combat the idea of escape and point us to reconciliation and restoration. It's not escape from all the bad things that happens in God's presence. It's restoration and reconciliation. No more mourning, no more death, no more separation, no more sin, no more sickness. All things are made right in our Father's presence. We don't just escape all the bad things. All things are made right. There's a difference. There's a difference in what you look forward to. See, in the coming of Christ in this Christmas season, what do we, what do we remember? We remember that Jesus was born. Yes, He was born. Why was He born? He was born to die. That's why He was born. He was born to die. And yet, in His death, the power of hell could not hold him because on the third day he left the tomb empty and then he ascended into heaven and left us with that promise of his return to set everything right again. And in all of this, what we learn is that Jesus actually proved that he reigns supreme over Satan, sin, and death. 
Never forget that. Jesus reigns supreme over all things. Satan, sin, and the grave. How could Jesus do all of this? How could Jesus, in fact, die for the sins of the world and then leave that tomb empty three days later? How could that happen? He was able to do that because he does, in fact, reign supreme over all of eternity and over all creation. So despite all the evil things in this world, Jesus does reign supreme. Amen? Would you stand with me as I uh, close us in prayer and as we prepare to sing together? Father, as we close our time together in your word, Lord, I pray that you would would come and minister to us, that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit, that you would help our hearts to um, worship you and praise you. Lord, lead us to that place, the foot of a bloody cross, the doorway of an empty tomb. Help us to put our hope, find our rest in you. Lord, if there's things that are not right in each of us gathered here this morning, Lord, I pray that you would begin to restore those things and and make them right. Set Set us on a trajectory towards trusting in you, your work, and the supremacy of Jesus. We trust you to do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.